It's really good to be with you guys tonight. Uh, uh, words really fail me uh, to uh, to describe how wonderful the past two years have been, uh, and how much the past two years have meant to Ashley and I. You guys took in a couple of people, well, at least one person who didn't know what in the world they were doing, and you guys gave me a venue to learn. And to be molded and to learn how to preach, learn how to teach. And I just appreciate so much that you guys have given me that opportunity, that you guys have supported me through that opportunity with your words, with your cards, with your finances. It is insanely humbling to recognize how much people desire to worship God, to serve God, and to see his work done so much so that they're willing to put up with a new guy who doesn't know how to do those things, but wants to learn. And it is, uh, we have benefited so much from being here. I was actually thinking just yesterday about how much I've grown spiritually, how much Ashley has grown spiritually over the past two years. And it's I mean, it is unfathomable to think of how uh, I I feel like a different person now that I'm leaving here. I have grown so much from your guys' exposure, uh, your guys' knowledge of the word and your comments in classes and your conversations with me afterward. Words fail to talk about all this. I just I just want you guys to know I love you guys and I cannot wait to come back and visit you guys whenever we take some trips down here to come see our spiritual family and our blood family. Uh, you guys feel like my blood family. You guys are wonderful. If you guys go ahead and open up to Second Corinthians, you guys open up, or y'all open up. If I'm going to Texas, I better speak like a Texan. If y'all open up to Second Corinthians, y'all open up to Second Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to begin our study tonight in verse 12 and go through verse 17. Unfortunately, for my last sermon, we have a difficult text, but an absolutely beautiful text before us. What happened in Corinth is on Paul's second visit to Corinth, he was openly criticized by people who had come into the congregation, as Paul refers to them as super apostles or as boasters. He was essentially criticized by these people because they apparently before the world had great successful ministries and they boasted of their own abilities and their of their own abilities to teach people. Yet when Paul came on his second visit to Corinth, they openly criticized Paul because Paul was such a seemingly weak person and he suffered so much as he taught the gospel. And they believed that disqualified him or at least made him look weak. And he should not be so bold for such a weak suffering apostle. But the difficult thing is that when he was criticized, the Corinthians did not defend Paul at all. The one who had fathered them in the faith was left out in the open to be criticized by these people who came to their congregation. And so Paul left. Paul left the congregation. And uh, instead of going on a third visit to Corinth, as he had promised them, he instead wrote them a letter of rebuke, rebuking them for their ways. And he sent Titus to deliver this letter. That's going to be important, as we'll see in our text today. He sent Titus to deliver this letter. And Titus then returned to tell Paul the good news that the Corinthians had repented of their sins once he had rebuked them for their misdeeds and for their mistakes, for their sins. 
And so Paul now writes 2 Corinthians, this letter, to further establish his relationship with the Corinthians and to describe to them what a true, sincere minister of Christ, a true, sincere servant or teacher of the gospel looks like to defend his own ministry before Christ. And we've already seen in the past two weeks, if you've been with us on Sunday morning, the past two weeks, you've seen how we've talked about how Paul has described his afflictions and how Paul has defended his letter of rebuke. But now from chapters 2, verse 14, and on to chapter 7 and verse 4, Paul is going to defend what a true, sincere servant of the gospel looks like. And he's not just doing that just to defend himself. There's really an important thing that's going on here. Since the boasters have come into the congregation and boasted of their own abilities and boasted of how they never seem to suffer for the gospel and they have all these abilities, it's made Paul look really weak. And it's made true, sincere teachers of the gospel look really weak and look really foolish. And so Paul's not only writing to defend himself, but he's writing to the Corinthians, describing what a true, sincere teacher of the gospel looks like so that the Corinthians themselves can become true, sincere teachers of the gospel and not be led astray by these people who boast of outward appearances and boast of their own abilities and boast of how they do not suffer in their teaching of Christ. But our question tonight then is going to be, what does a true, sincere teacher of the gospel look like? And what is their purpose? What motivates them day to day? How do they see themselves? This is a question I believe we probably ask ourselves each day when someone tells me as I walk into, as I meet someone who I met for the first time and they tell me they're a Christian, I wonder in my mind, what is a sincere Christian? Are they a true sincere Christian? Who is real and who is fake? But I think even more importantly, what we need to do tonight is we need to examine ourselves and we need to ask ourselves the question, are we true, sincere teachers of the gospel? And if we do not see ourselves in that situation, how can we become true, sincere teachers of the gospel? And Paul's going to answer that question in three parts in verses 12 to 17. He is going to say that true, sincere teachers of the gospel are led by God in a triumphal procession. And they are the fragrance of Christ. And they also are not salesmen of God's word, but they are sincere teachers. Let's notice those three points more in depth as we get into the text tonight, asking what true servants of the gospel look like. Notice with me verses 12 through 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance of death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? 
For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The first thing I want for us to notice tonight is that true servants of the gospel are led as captives in God's triumphal procession. And before we notice that in verse 14, what I want for us to notice is that in verses 12 to 13, you'll see that Paul begins a narrative, as he often does in 2 Corinthians, and then peels away into teaching, and we are left to wonder why. Well, what happens, the narrative that uh, Paul begins here and doesn't actually complete until chapter 7 is essentially the narrative of how he went to Troas because he was supposed to meet Titus there. Supposed to meet Titus in Troas so he could preach the gospel with Titus and so that he could hear the report of how the Corinthians were doing in their walk with God. How they received his rebuke. But when Paul went to Troas, Titus was nowhere to be found. He looked and looked for Titus, but there was no sign of him. And there was a wide open door for Paul to preach the gospel. But Paul was so anxious. He was suffering so much because he wondered what was going on with Titus. Was he safe? How were the Corinthians doing? He was so anxious that he left a wide open door to preach the gospel and left for Macedonia to try to find Titus. So he could know how the Corinthians were doing and how Titus was doing. And then instead of completing the narrative, what's interesting to me is that you notice in verse 14 that he peels away and he begins teaching for the next five chapters on something completely different. And we wonder, well, why have you done this? Here's the point. As Paul talks about his anxiety and suffering for the gospel, as he talks about his anxiety that led him to close an open door, boasters who think much of themselves and of their own ministry and think of their own glory, look at Paul and say, look at all of this anxiety that has caused him to close an open door. He could have furthered his ministry. He could have been a more successful preacher of the gospel. He is not a sincere apostle. But what Paul does here is he uses this opportunity to speak of his anxiety and his suffering to prove, to prove that because of his anxiety and because of his suffering, this does not prove that he is not sincere, but rather it proves his willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ, to go through anxiety, to go through trouble, and to, yes, even look like an insane person who closes an open door because he cares so much for the Corinthians. He cares so much for certain people. And he does this, he describes his sincerity by first saying that we all, as Christians who teach the gospel, are are led by God in Christ in a triumphal procession. As we read those words, we wonder, well, what does that even mean for God to lead us in Christ in a triumphal procession? What does that mean? And how does that relate to our suffering? How does that prove that as suffering Christians, we are sincere teachers of the gospel? Well, being led in a triumphal procession is not an image that we're really... uh, uh, It doesn't come to our minds very rapidly what that even means today, because it's not a picture that we see today. Rather, what Paul is doing is he is using a metaphor that was associated with the common picture back in the Roman world then. 
See, to talk about a triumphal procession automatically brought up in the mind of a person in a Roman world, the mind of what happened whenever the Romans had a great triumph, whenever they won a major military victory, what they would do in order to honor Rome, in order to honor Caesar, and especially to declare the great power of the conquering general who had won that great victory, what they would do is the conquering general would lead a procession about the streets of Rome. He would get in his chariots, he would be uh, adorned in a royal garb, and he would go throughout the streets of Rome. So that he might be seen and glorified before the people. And so that people might look at him and see, ah, the great power of Rome. Because as followed him, as he rode down the streets of Rome in his chariot dressed all nicely, what followed him were the spoils of war. Fragrant incense went throughout the city declaring their power, declaring his royalty. And there were, uh, there were spoils of war following him. But what is most important for our study tonight is that at the end of this triumphal procession declaring the power of the great general who conquered, is at the end of this procession, there would be a train of captives, actual captives that the general had conquered. They had brought them as captives from their city or from their country, and they would follow behind this general. Why? Well, and also another detail is they would follow behind this general, and they would actually all, except for a few, be slaughtered at the end of the procession. Why, we wonder, why do these captives follow in the procession, and why are they killed? Ah, it is to proclaim the great power of the general. What does it look like when you've got a bunch of conquered people following behind you in chains? I'm boss. I'm the big man around here. Well, what does that mean then for Paul to say that he is led by God in a triumphal procession? Well, though many people have often interpreted this and even translated this text, if you have a New King James Bible or American Standard Bible or anything that has a similar translation, you'll notice that it says, instead of we're led in a triumphal procession, it says that we triumph in Christ. But what's interesting is that's not what that verb means. Your ESV Bible or your, if you have an updated NIV Bible or a New Living Translation Bible, those accurately translate the verb that you see in your Bibles there in the ESV as led in a triumphal procession. Because it does not mean, the verb thriambomai does not mean to cause to triumph, but to be led in triumphal procession. And while that might seem like a small distinction, it is a huge distinction. Because that does not mean that we are following God as a fellow victor and one who is triumphing in God's great victory. Rather, if we're spoken of as the direct object of that verb, as we are, and as Paul refers to himself in this passage as the direct object in that verb, that means he is being led in this triumphal procession, which means that he is a captive in God's triumphal procession. He is conquered by God. 
And that's pretty huge. The NIV follows that, and the New Living Translation follows that, and a few other modern translations. Listen to how they interpret it or how they translate it. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so we wonder, well, why would Paul say that we are God's captives? Aren't we fellow victors and conquerors with Christ? In a certain sense, we are, but that's for other metaphors and other passages. Right now, Paul's trying to emphasize something especially important to us that I believe David Garland uh, describes in a very good way. David Garland is an excellent commentator. What he says about this is he says, Paul does not represent himself as a garlanded, victorious general, nor as a foot soldier in God's army who shares in the glory of Christ's triumph. Quite the opposite. He portrays himself as a conquered prisoner being put on display. He was previously God's enemy, but is now defeated and is being led in a display that reveals the majesty and power of God and effectively proclaims the gospel. I believe Garland describes this correctly because as we apply this to us, this really starts to make sense trying to pull this all together. We talked about it in our Roman study this morning how we have all been at one time enemies of our God. Paul described himself as an enemy of God. He persecuted God's people. We've all been enemies of God at one time or another in our lives. What Paul is saying here when he says that we are captives conquered by God, led in a procession, is he's saying that you, each of us, have been conquered by God. We were God's enemies, but now we have been conquered. And what God desires to do is he desires to lead us throughout the world, displaying these are the people I have conquered. And what does that do? That displays his glory, that displays his power. It makes us look weak, but it makes him look great and powerful. What God is doing in our lives is if we have been truly conquered as sincere servants of the gospel, we will live as captives in God's triumphal procession, meaning we will joyfully suffer, joyfully die as conquered captives to display our Lord's power and to display and to proclaim the knowledge of our God through the gospel, we will do whatever it takes so that people might know about our great Lord who has conquered the enmity and the sin in us. It's really an absolutely beautiful picture. Well, why do we talk about this? Why is this important? Well, just as the Corinthians were convinced by teachers who boasted of their own abilities, who walked around the room like they were big stuff, like who talked about their great triumphs, who talked about how they never seemed to suffer for the gospel. They never seemed to speak in a way that would upset anybody. You know, we could be confused, too. As we go about in the world and we see people who wear the name of Christ, yet they seem happy and smiling and they never suffer. And no one ever hates them because they never talk about the gospel in a way that would convict men's hearts. And we wonder, well, is that a true Christian? What about me? People don't like me. We wonder, is this right? Am I living right? Am I actually following the purposes of God in a right way? 
That's not what genuine Christianity looks like, Christians. The Corinthians had been confused. For a while, they began to expect, as one person said, they were looking for a leader powerful in speech, deeds, and personal presence who exuded the self-confidence of an agent of God. But Christians, genuine Christians, are not displayed before the world as a quintessential picture of success and glory and prosperity. Instead, genuine Christians are displayed before the world as captives of our God willing to suffer just to speak about the gospel no matter if people want to make fun of us or kill us for it. We will deny all worldly success. We will deny all pleasures. We will deny security. We will deny safety. We will go to countries. We will go anywhere we must Where the word of God has not been proclaimed, even if the people we go to will kill us for doing it. We will do that because we are captives in God's triumphal procession. We were created, we were conquered to speak the glory of our King. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. And honestly, this is very different than the happy, smiley, surface level Christianity that it accepts everyone today. And so here is the question for us here in this room for us to be asking ourselves. Are we truly God's captives? Are we truly conquered by God and leading a life that is defined by how much we want to spread his glory and spread the knowledge of God, no matter how people will treat us? Or are we trying to live as people free from his rule as if glorifying him doesn't matter, as if we have not been conquered? Christians, if Christ has conquered us, we are then people who will willingly endure suffering and death to spread the knowledge of God through the gospel. And as I consider this message and this application, I realize how much I need to hear this, how much we all probably need to hear this, because you're probably like me. As I think about going to Houston, going to a city where I don't know anybody and trying to establish a life where every person I come in contact with, I'm seeing them as a soul who God has put me in their life for a reason because I am his captive to proclaim his glory. I get scared to death as I think about that because honestly, if someone looks at me weird, I get scared. Let alone if I proclaim the gospel and they hate me and ridicule me for it. It's a scary thing to think about proclaiming the gospel. It's a scary thing to think about how God has conquered us, conquered the enmity in us for this purpose alone. So that his glory might be revealed in this world. Because if I don't meet that purpose, then I have completely failed in everything, every purpose that God has given me. But Christians, we're not destined to be liked by the world. We are not destined to even be liked by other people who claim to be Christians. This letter had to be written because people in Corinth who claimed to be Christians didn't like how much Paul was suffering and sacrificing for the gospel. It made them uncomfortable. 
He's extreme. <laughs> could, a, could a true servant of Christ suffer so much and be so bold as to speak and be rejected so often? Yes, Paul says. Yes. See, we are not destined to be liked by the world nor by other people who call themselves Christians. And we're not destined to be people who think about how people are going to react to our proclaiming of the gospel. And so next time fear wells up in your guts as it will well up in mine, as we consider telling people about our King Jesus, remember that this is what we were created for. This is what our lives are all about. This is why God has conquered our sinful nature. It is so that his power and goodness might be displayed through our bodies and through our mouths. We have all willingly made ourselves his captives. Let's live like it. Let's follow him and let's have boldness. The boldness that points to the king that leads our procession and not be scared. Let's overcome that fear. Now, what's interesting is there, you'll notice there in verse 14, that Paul says it spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Let's notice in verses 15 and 16 how people react to that fragrance. He says, but thanks be to God. Oh, sorry. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance of death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Before we notice how people react to this fragrance of our lives, to our lives that proclaim the glory of Christ, no matter if we are safe, no matter if people kill us, we need to notice one important thing, that this is a Christ-like fragrance to God. I love how the New Living Translation translates this. It is, I really like how they translate this entire passage. He says, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. When we live lives like Christ did, when we deny ourselves and deny safety, the second point I want for us to notice is that true servants of the gospel give off the aroma of Christ And what is most important about that is that God recognizes our Christ-like nature and is pleased by it. When Paul says that this is a Christ-like fragrance going up to God, that is the most important thing to Paul and should be the most important thing to us. Because honestly, people's reactions vary whenever we give off the scent of Christ. The most important thing we need to remember is that when God looks down at our lives as we give everything to suffer for the gospel, he is pleased. He notices. He smells Christ in us and is satisfied. And we have to emphasize that in our minds because we're not always going to be pleasing people. And it's going to seem like we're doing the wrong thing and we're not going to have God's hand come down and give us a high five or give us a thumbs up while we're going through in our lives. And we have to remember in the midst of suffering that Paul guarantees us here that this is the scent of Christ and it goes up to God. What's so important about that is, as you see in verses 15 to 16, the reactions of people in the world are quite different. There are two different reactions. As people smell Christ in us, the first reaction that Paul talks about is that it is a morbid stench of death to death. When people see Christ in us, it smells like morbid death. They don't like it. Well, why? 
Why does that smell like morbid death to them when they see Christ in us? Well, think about it like this. When we are living a life that is Christ-like, that means that we aren't pursuing all the pleasures and self-indulgence of this world. If we are true, sincere servants of the gospel, we're not interested in all the pleasures of this world. We're focused on one thing alone, the glory of our Father. We talk differently, we dress differently, we work differently, we handle our anger differently. We always talk about the glory of our King. We always talk about our God, and you know that makes people pretty uncomfortable, and they don't like it. As people have told me, and have probably told you, you're weird. Your life must be miserable. Your life must be boring. It's like your life is just a life of death. They don't see life. And when they reject us, when Paul says that, is, that, they, that we are the sense of death to death, what that means is they smell death in us as they see Christ, and that leads us to their own spiritual death. What that means is when people see Christ and they reject those people, they're essentially rejecting Christ to their own condemnation. When people reject Christ-like people, they are rejecting Christ and they are condemned for it. And that's pretty discouraging for us as we consider that. But it also ought to be comforting to us as well. In those moments when we're discouraged by the way the world rejects us, we need to remember Christ's words in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. When people see us as Christ, as they saw Christ and they reject us for it, and they see our lives as miserable, be comforted because they wouldn't have reacted any differently if Jesus would have come to this world. It's sad, but it's comforting to recognize that the problem is not in us at all. They would have treated Jesus the same way. But what is so motivating to me, and I hope will be motivating to you, is that not only does God see Christ in us and is pleased with that, but you notice in verse 16 that to some, some will smell a fragrance of life to life as they see Christ in us. This means that when others see Christ in us, they smell true life. And we wonder, well, what does that mean? But when they are looking around in life for greater fulfillment, when they're looking for their God, when they're looking for eternal life, and they see in us a life that is a people that are willing to do anything to proclaim the gospel of our King, even if we're rejected by the world, even if we suffer for it and we're so passionate about our King and we cannot stop talking about what He's done in our life, you know, that intrigues them. And that leads them to wonder... How can I have the same thing that they have? They see true life. Has that ever happened in your life where you've been motivated by someone you saw who was so dedicated to Christ that it motivated you to find deeper life and deeper, deeper suffering in Christ? It's happened to me. I went to a college with a guy. I went to a college that's deemed a Christian college. Yet there was one guy in the college everyone knew was different. Even though he was around a bunch of Christians, there was one guy in the college who was completely different from everybody else. This was a man who truly took his cross and followed Christ. He lived as a suffering captive. I think I killed it. As a suffering captive. 
of Christ. He was different from everybody else. Though he was a humble and a joyful man, he was not interested in the pleasures of this world. He was not interested in them at all. In every conversation with him, it was always him relating his life back to the glory of God. He was always talking about how God had blessed him and about how he was desiring to serve God. And he was always so humble, yet so joyful, yet never caring about what people thought about him. He would talk about God and it did not matter if you cared or not. He was going to talk about God because God had sent him to talk about God. You know, at first when I was around him, I thought he was weird. (laughs) I thought he was weird. I was uncomfortable around him. In fact, everyone was uncomfortable around him. But as I started to spend more time around him, I realized that it was not him who was uh, messed up. He was weird. That's because he was different from the world. And we were trying to be like the world and never talk about God. Never talk about the glory of our king. Try to make it look like we were cool Christians instead of dedicated, suffering captives of our God. And as time went on, he started to smell like true life to me. And he led me to realize that I was the one missing out on the true joys of suffering and giving everything for Jesus Christ, no matter what people thought of me. You know, there's some people in that college that thought he smelled like death too and that never changed for them and that will lead them to their eternal condemnation. But for this guy, he's led me to greater life in Christ. That's what we can do for other people is if we will be fully dedicated to speaking the gospel at every opportunity and to pointing to the power and glory of our King no matter what people say about us, we will lead people to make a decision about Christ. And so I believe then we can be, uh, we can be uh, comforted and encouraged. We can be humbled and we can be motivated. We can be comforted and encouraged because when people see Christ in us and they reject us, we can be comforted because it's not us they're rejecting. They're rejecting Christ and that's their problem. Though we are sad about it, we can be encouraged because it's not our fault. And second, though, we can be encouraged and humbled in a way because when people see Christ in us and when they actually come to salvation because they see Christ in us, we can be humbled because it's not us they see. It's Christ they see. And we can be motivated because that is a huge task. Paul is literally saying that through us, we are walking around in the world and we will constantly speak of Christ. No matter who we're talking to, no matter if they think that we think that they will reject us, we are constantly going throughout the world as people who are condemning and saving people just by the way they see us. If they see us and don't like us, they're condemned. And they see us, if they see us and they like what they see, they will be led to find greater salvation. And that... Honestly, that's a motivating, but it's also a scary thought. And that I submit to you, that's what Paul is talking about when he goes on in verse at the end of verse 16 and says, Who is sufficient for these things? I like how the NLT translates it. It says, Who is adequate for such a task as this? Who can be someone who goes around in the world and by their actions, just by the way they live, just by the way they speak, people are making a decision about if they're going to follow Christ or not. Who's adequate for such a task as this? Am I? 
That's the third point I want to consider with you tonight is not only are we led in a triumphal procession as captives, not only are we the aroma of Christ to God, but we are also, if we are going to be adequate for a task like this, going throughout the world proclaiming the power of our King, then we must be sincere and not act like salesmen. We must be, as Paul was, sincere people of God who speak Christ's word knowing Notice what he says there in verse 17. Notice what he says. He says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul is saying that if we are true, sincere servants of the gospel, we will suffer as captives proclaiming the glory of our king. We will give off the aroma of life or of death to people in the world, and we will not act like peddlers of God's word. We will be sincere. We will not act like salesmen. With Paul reminding us that he was not a salesman of God's word, but a sincere man commissioned by God, I believe this gives us the opportunity to remember what we should be motivated by. Because as we consider people's reactions and people looking at us as if we're crazy and if we're as if we're weird whenever we talk about Jesus at every opportunity, we can sometimes be a little bit too motivated by that thought. We can be a little bit too scared. And then we can start to change our message and we can start to judge, am I going to talk in this situation about God? Am I going to do it? Because after all, I think they're probably going to reject me. We can end up being motivated by man's opinions about our gospel. We can end up subconsciously choosing the easier road. And what I want to submit to you is the most common road of Christians today. We wear the name of Christ, but we do not suffer for his gospel. It's the easier road, isn't it? And you know what? The world accepts us when we do that. And worldly Christians accept us when we do that. When we live wearing the name of Christ, but not proclaiming his gospel... As much as possible, we will be accepted by the world and we will be accepted by worldly Christians because the world and worldly Christians will applaud us along when we remain silent and when we do not speak. That's what these men were doing who were accusing Paul of being insincere. Oh, he's insincere. He's not a real... He's he's not... He's not worthy of this, how much he suffers. No, they weren't willing to do the hard thing. They were accepted immediately by the Corinthians. Why? They took the easy road. They didn't speak things that would be conflicting to hearers. But as we are deciding how we're going to talk, how we're going to dress, how we're going to spend our money, making life-altering decisions, and most importantly, whether or not we're going to speak the gospel and how we're going to speak the gospel, we need to stop for one moment and remember one thing. How people react does not matter because we aren't salesmen. Think about it. Only a salesman changes what they sell and whether or not they're going to try to make a sale based on how they think people are going to react to what they're selling. Well, if a car salesman doesn't think someone's going to buy a car, they're not 
going to try to sell the car. But take the metaphor a little bit further. We've been given one car and we are to try to sell it. But we're not supposed to think of ourselves as salesmen because the sale is not dependent on us. And it's not up to us to decide whether or not people are going to receive it. It's not up to us to make it seem like a more palatable message. The gospel is what we've been given. We've been commissioned by God to speak. And we're not salesmen who are supposed to be worried about the bottom line, supposed to be worried about whether or not people are going to receive us or not. That's when I get in myself in trouble is when I start to think of myself as a salesman of how can I say, speak the gospel in a way that will ensure they accept it. Because you know what happens? That doesn't sound too bad, but what happens when I think like that is I end up leaving off the more difficult parts of the message and I try to just make it palatable. And I make it sound like, you know, it's everything that you already are. Just make this one step and you're good. That's what a salesman does. But Christians, if we are sincere teachers of the gospel, though we will speak in love, and though we will avoid tactics that seem to hurt the gospel, we will speak the truth of the gospel and we will not shy away from it. We will speak the glory of our king no matter how anyone reacts. Whether we know they are an enemy of God, we will not stop speaking no matter what they threaten to do to us. And so what we need to be asking before we speak and as we consider speaking and as we consider our fear is not how will they react, but How will my father be most glorified? Will my father be pleased by what I am doing right now? Because as Paul says there in verse 17, we've been commissioned by God. We're not here to please other Christians. We're not here to please any church. We're not here to please any standard or goal. We are simply here because we're commissioned by God to speak the gospel. And so in conclusion, as we consider what a sincere servant of the gospel looks like, I want to give you some helpful things to remember day to day. The first thing I want for each of us to remember is that suffering for the sake of speaking the gospel is not a sign of our failure. It is a sign that we have been willfully conquered by our God. God has conquered us as his enemies so that he could lead us in a triumphal procession so that we could proclaim his glory. And if we suffer in the midst of that, and if it seems like we're not enjoying pleasures of this world, don't think there's something wrong. We are only meeting our purpose that God has given us. Second, suffering for the sake of the gospel is not a sign of our failure. It is a sign that those who cause our suffering are condemned and do not love Christ. Third, experiencing successes in the gospel should not only humble us because they're seeing Christ in us, not us, but it should also motivate us to consider how we ought to keep speaking the gospel at every single opportunity because if we change our scent, if we change the way we live, then people who are truly seeking our God and truly seeking the comfort of the comforts of our Lord and our eternal home won't find us if we stop speaking with boldness. And fourth, when deciding whether or not to speak the gospel, speak and don't think like a salesman considering how other people are going to react. Only consider this. My heavenly father has commissioned me to speak. And so I must speak to please him no matter what people think of me. Honestly, as I consider leaving here and consider coming back, that is what would be the greatest joy 
for me is when I come back and when I visit, I want for us to be swapping stories about how much we've been rejected and how much we've been accepted, no matter if we have successes or no matter if we've had failures, but that we've been focusing on one thing, that we have constantly and unfailingly, no matter how people react, proclaimed the glory of our King. That's the only thing I want to see out of you guys, and I hope that's the only thing uh, you guys desire to see out of me, and that's what I'm going to be working for. I want to conclude with one passage to encourage you as we go about accepting this life of suffering, rejecting the pleasures of this world, but accepting our purpose in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't be surprised when the trial comes upon you. Don't be surprised when people reject you. Rejoice. This is our opportunity to be conquered captives of our God. If you have not had this awesome opportunity to join the family of our God, to join this triumphal procession that follows, proclaim, follows God proclaiming his great power, this is your purpose in life. And you can adopt that purpose in your life if you will come to Jesus Christ in faith and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can rise to walk as a child of his and yes, even as a conquered enemy of his, given new purpose and new joy in your life. If there is any way we can help you in your walk with with God, come forward to the front while we stand and while we